Hi, I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from people just like you who share caregiving stories from the field, how you cope, what you've learned, and how care has changed your life. We also hear from professionals in the field of aging and people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about what it means to get older. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. M.K. Surwick has made it her life's work to explore how graphic novels or comics can play a serious role in discussions around illness and caregiving. It all began in 1994 when she took her first nursing job at the Illinois Masonic Medical Center in Unit 371, which was dedicated to caring for AIDS patients. Working in the unit, M.K. began recording comics as a way of processing her experience. Her graphic novel, Taking Turns, Stories from HIV-AIDS Care Unit 371, was published in March of 2017. The book combines MK's memories with the oral histories of patients, family members, and staff on the ward. MK's a registered nurse and senior fellow at the George Washington University School of Nursing Center for Health Policy and Media Engagement. She joins us today from Chicago, Illinois. MK Serwick, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you very much. So your background, you grew up in Chicago. Your mom was a nurse. And yes, yes. tell us a little bit about growing up in Chicago. I know that you cared for your dad. Give us uh, a little bit of background to put this in context for the listeners. Right, right. So, yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and went to Loyola. I went to college close to home because, as you say, we were caregiving for my father who had had multiple strokes and kind of was on uh, sort of a downward trajectory with his uh, functionality. Uh, He was completely dependent on us. So I would go to college during the week and come home on the weekends and help my mom caring for my dad and my brother did the same. Hmm. So your dad was your first patient. Uh, Exactly, exactly. And and when I graduated from college with my degree in English and philosophy and had no idea what I was going to do with that, I worked for a little while and then realized I needed to get a job. And the one thing I knew I could do well was be a professional caregiver because I had, you know, been doing it so long and being raised by a nurse. You know, I was making hospital corners at about three. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I knew I could do it well. So, uh, so I decided to do that as, as my professional work as well. But I'd always hoped that I could bring the art and my desire to kind of, when I studied English and philosophy, I really wanted to have a place in the arts, but I didn't feel like there was any area that I was particularly talented or good at. (laughs) And so I went into healthcare, but really in the back of my mind, I'd always hoped I could find a way to bring them together. And as I understand it, on your first day of your medical clinical rotation, you were assigned a man in a wheelchair who reminded you a lot of your dad. And you almost quit because it was so difficult for you. And this was actually soon after he passed away. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. The first rotation I had was obstetrics and gynecology. And of course, I saw a birth a week after we had buried him. And that was very moving. Um, And I thought, well, I'll be a midwife. (laughs) That would seem like the thing to do. And then, uh, yeah, I I had to get through the rest of nursing school. And I I was in med surg. And uh, I thought, oh, no, what was I thinking? I can't do this. Uh And so you were placed on another side of the 
Hospital, Unit 371. Is that how it began? Well, actually, no. Uh, it was at Rush, where I was in nursing school, uh, mm-hmm. but the other side of the medical floor that I was on was the HIV area um, where most of the HIV patients had been brought at that time, and it was 1994, so it was still part of the crisis years. And right. So, right, so I did a private clinical there, and then at that point, I realized that that was absolutely what my life work would be. I just I knew it after just a week there. That's something not everyone can say. Um, so for younger listeners who don't really know much about this time period, uh, give us a sense of the atmosphere in Unit 371 and the LGBT community versus the community at large. You must have felt like you were kind of traversing two different worlds there. They really did feel like two different worlds. Um, so in the community, there, it was certainly on the unit. I can speak to the unit. There was a sense of absolute crisis. Things weren't getting better and a loss of hope that it would stop. So every patient we met who was generally young, somewhere between, you know, 20 and 60, was going to die of their disease as far as we knew. And many of them had, and we'd been with them from a first diagnosis uh, with maybe a a simple pneumonia through their decline over several years to uh, their death. Um, And so we had uh, a high sense of crisis. Uh, Our unit was was very frequently full. Patients were often either at almost ICU level care or in hospice. Um, And so it was really an intense environment, certainly a trial by fire for a new nurse. And you were there for several years, right? I was there for, yeah, I was there for six years. Um, I was actually there through the years when the new medications emerged and we were able to close the unit, which really felt like quite a miracle. Yeah. But to, to your previous question, so then the odd gulf was that off the unit in the general rest of my life in the real world, there wasn't a sense that there was a crisis. And that was really uh, d- disquieting to me because, you know, I wanted to scream like, you know, the problems that you feel are so important, you have no idea what people are going through and how they're suffering and how they're at a young age having to face their own death. It was really quite strange for me. And for folks who don't know, we should make the point that in 1995, there were half a million reported cases of AIDS in the United States. Those were just the cases that were being reported. The number peaked in the U.S. in 95 and then dropped pretty drastically in the following years because of the release of antiretroviral protease inhibitors. So the book, as I understand it, started out as a journal. And tell us about the evolution of the book. Right. So in a way, yeah, I was keeping a journal, mostly just text, uh, kind of writing as a way to clear my head so that when I would go to work the next day, I would be able to be present to the patients that were there, the stories that were unfolding, and not really be caught up in still trying to process what happened the day before. It was very much of a survival technique. And so uh, then it got to a point where it got, you know, I was still so overwhelmed when I would be at home, it got too hard to write all that text. It got too hard to do that kind of reflection. And so I remember that I had started painting um, boards. I had used just image alone to kind of remember patients that I cared for. And then it got to a point where I felt like that wasn't telling the whole story. And towards the end of the life of the unit, I one day out of absolute desperation, just, you know, a patient I cared about very, very much had died the day before. And I had to go back to work. And I wasn't really sure how I was going to be able to be over kind of all of my own feelings to be present to my patients. You know, they don't teach you this stuff in nursing school. Um, And so I just stumbled, almost literally stumbled into making 
a comic, my first comic. I wrote, uh, kind of just drew this picture of myself and just wrote a few words like, I think it was something like, I feel miserable. Mm-hmm. And then I just put this box around it. And then I thought, well, there's one box there. And so I drew another <laughs> box. I mean, this sounds crazy, but it really is how I stumbled into making comics. It was not something I approached intentionally. Mm-hmm. It was really about trying to be able to be ready to take care of my patients one day. Mm-hmm. And it worked tremendously well. I found myself after kind of nine boxes of image and text in a place of hope, in a place of renewal, and, and feeling like it had accomplished the goal I set out to do on the page. And that was it. I realized that um, this was going to be something that was really helpful for me. And so just to answer back to your question of how did the book come to be, I realized I wanted to, you know, I'd started making comics and found they were this incredible way to bridge that gulf I was telling you about between, you know, at that time then as the unit was closing, kind of me rethinking what was I going to do with myself, kind of helped me through those, those questions and reflecting on all kinds of caregiving situations. I wanted to make better comics, and I decided I, I discovered this field called medical humanities and bioethics. Also, it's been referred to since as health humanities, mm. and it's all of the humanities as applied to the practice and experience of healthcare. So, applied philosophy, for example, is is bioethics. Um, there's literature in medicine, history of medicine, philosophy of medicine, all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I wanted to study that field because I really wanted to look at the role of story. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something about the way those comics were eliciting stories in a way that was really, really helpful for me. And there are a lot of people who have written in this field of literature and medicine and also medical anthropology about the role of story and why it helps us to hear stories about illness and also to tell stories about illness and caregiving. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to study that and inform the comics I would make with that kind of level of understanding. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I also realized that since I was representing my patients, I had some um, responsibility to them to do that ethically. So I, I looked at the ethics of that during my degree. And um, and then along the way discovered that the history of the unit that you mentioned, the Unit 371 that I worked on, had not really been publicly or formally recorded in, in any kind of way. And so I decided that I would do an oral history as my thesis for my master's program. And then I always knew that eventually somehow I was going to put all that together in comic form with my own memories. Um, and that's how the book came to be what it is today. Uh-huh. So when you were working on the ward, you were doing the comics then, but it was really in a very sort of rudimentary form. Is that is that right? No, the comics really came towards the very end of the life of the unit, like okay. around 2000, which mm-hmm. is when it closed. Mm-hmm. But interestingly... To that question, just jumping ahead, I then, in the last maybe five or six years, was um, really the primary person looking out for my 90-some-year-old mother uh, and 90-some-year-old aunt. And with all the, so I was sort of a more a caregiver on the personal level. And in doing that, since I'd already had this method I realized and I'd been talking about and studying of, of using comics as a tool for caregiving, that's when I was doing very quick, rudimentary, four-panel sketches about the frustrations and rewards and dealing with caring for uh, my elderly family members and found that it stood up as a very, very useful tool uh, in the face of this work again. Mm-hmm. Your mom's featured in a, a lot of your comics. I saw a few of them online. Is your mom, yeah, still, she, your mom still alive, right? 
No, no. Oh. My mom passed in October of last year. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Oh, thank you very much. The book is actually framed by the death of each of my parents. At the beginning of the book, in 1993, was when my father passed away, uh-huh. and that's kind of the beginning of the story of how I got into AIDS care. And at the very end of the book, right as it was about to go to press, actually, my mom entered hospice and passed away about a week later. Oh my gosh, that must have been so hard for you. Yeah, you know, in a weird way, though, it was a, it was a. You know, it, it, she was 90, uh, 92 years old. She had a great life. Mm-hmm. We built a great mm-hmm. relationship, and I was with her. She was in hospice. I pr- kept every promise I'd made to her. So Aww. in a lot of ways, it was actually quite lovely. Uh-huh. Hence your interest in end-of-life care, too, probably, right? End of exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, yes, exactly. And, and also the value of making comics for caregivers. Uh-huh. Well, t- tell us more about that. Um, first of all, I know that you did your master's on what comics can contribute to the medical humanities. This is referred to as your graphic medicine origin story. Can you define for our listeners what graphic medicine is and what is the place of comics in the discourse of medicine? Right, absolutely. So picking up with the story I was telling, along the way during the course of doing my master's program, I came across a book called Mom's Cancer by Brian Fies, F-I-E-S, and it blew my mind because what Brian had done was use comics in a very sophisticated way to convey the story of his family and have a nice critique on the health care that they received and the story of the family. And it, it really made me think, wait a minute, you know, I've been making comics and kind of had this dream, but when I was in my academic program, I really tried to sort of just use those as a little joke and then never really took them seriously, even though they had obviously had this great impact for me. And Brian's book made me say, wait a minute, should we be looking at these within the context of the health humanities and really thinking about them in, in a serious way? And so then I thought, well, are there other books around? What else is out there? And I went on the internet, and this is around 2008, 2009. And it turned out there was there were a few other people asking that same question. And so we kind of teamed up. And that there were also a number of really interesting books already out there. And since then, a huge number have emerged. And we sort of started this subdiscipline within literature and medicine called graphic medicine. Okay. And getting to your question of in, of kind of defining what that is, it's it's a lot of things. Um, it's people who are using comics as a tool for health communication. So you know, patient education, healthcare provider education through the comic form. You know, there's a long history of providing information um, in public health venues sure. for using comics. So that's one aspect of it. Another is patients and families and and providers who are using the making of comics as a tool for reflection in the way that I did. And people come to our annual conferences and talk about that. And then there are people who are reading these graphic memoirs that are already out there, like Mom's Cancer, like my book, I hope, like many others, um, and using them to kind of think about their own stories, educate healthcare providers. Um, you know, there, there are these books that are hundreds of them already out there are great tools. So those are only three ways, um, but there are, you know, every year people come to our annual conferences from quite literally all over the world and tell hmm. us ways in which they're using comics as a really vital and important tool in their work in healthcare. Yeah, because you think about the more traditional health narratives are sort of pamphlets that you get in the hospital. Mm-hmm. People don't really, I, I think, really, really read those also, but they're given to them at these moments of crisis. Um, they're kind of dry and I don't know, it just seems like graphic novels have so much potential. 
Having said that, though, for a lot of people, I think graphic novels and comic books are all about superheroes, you know, like Wonder Woman and X-Men. But obviously, comic books come in many shapes and forms, and they actually almost always have a message of some kind, even if it's sort of subliminal. Um, Right. Right. They're, they're incredibly helpful tools. And most people who created, for example, Brian Feast, who I, I mentioned, who created Mom's Cancer, and many people who have creative books about their experiences, whether it's with Parkinson's disease or eating disorders or the huge range of subjects that they can cover, said basically that I created the book that I wish that someone had handed to me, mm. that I could have dealt with at that time, or the information that I would have wanted to have. And as you say, a solid block of text, even with a few stock photos, is really too overwhelming when you're going through a high-stress situation. And so what I say is that it's very true that comics are really helpful when there are three factors present. One, you have a high density of information, so there's a lot you need to learn. Two, it's really important. You have a high importance to the information, so it's really important that you get the information right. And three, you're in a high-stress situation. You know, you're already feeling stress, and you can't really focus on a block of text. And if you think about it, you know, the classic example that's used as why comics are great as educational tools is when you're on an airplane and you pull out the safety card, in almost all cases, that's basically sequential art that's yep. assembled to give you information. It's a comic. Mm. Yeah. Um, and because you're in a high-stress situation, you need to know that information and there's a lot to know. So, hmm. um, you know, that I think explains why comics have been used uh, historically for public, important public health messaging. And But it's true for someone going through medical school. It's true, which is high stress and important. And it's also true for someone who's just received a new diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? You know, you're given this diagnosis. You really need to hear what the doctor's telling you about treatment plans, but you're too shocked and overwhelmed mm-hmm. uh, with just this, you know, like we stop hearing words after like you have cancer, right? Right. Right. And so, you know, these are the kind of tools that I think would be really helpful to send people home with. Um, you know, really well-crafted graphic narratives are, are really helpful in situations like this. Mm-hmm. So how, how receptive are health professionals to this new way of caregiving, in a way, I guess you could say? Yeah, that's what's really been shocking and overwhelming, I think, is how well-received it's been. You know, the Annals of Internal Medicine, and, and long-standing old medical journal, approached people organizing graphic medicine and said, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to feature some of these on our website. So now the Annals of Internal Medicine has a graphic medicine page on their website. Wow. Where, yeah, it's pretty shocking. Amazing. Where, yeah, where, and, and here's the other interesting piece too, where one of the things that, that graphic medicine does really well is, is really amplifies the voice of the patients and the families. Mm-hmm. And in the medical encounter. So on this Annals of Internal Medicine, Graphic Medicine page, not only are physicians who are making comics or other healthcare providers being published there, but families making comics about simple things like, you know, the, the, there's a beautiful one there called The Last Ride of Moe Rosenzweig, and it's about um, a, a woman thinking about her father and the ways in which his functionality changed over time in relation to bike riding, for example. Mm. And, you know, so there are these wonderful family reflections that are being published on the website of a of a medical journal. And that kind of, you know, that kind of sharing of voices, that kind of like equaling of the playing field, leveling of the playing field is something that the graphic medicine movement is is known for. And I think we're really quite proud of, you know, our conferences attract this enormously broad range of people that have a, a vested interest in healthcare, which of course is all of us, right? Right. And 
and allegedly, so who, right, right, right. <laughs> We're not the ones who get to make the policy, apparently, right. but um, but yeah. So that, that's really neat. So you've got you know patients presenting on a panel with physicians or to the physicians in the audience, and that just seems incredibly wow. something. We're really proud of that, and I think part of it owes to that we can all gather around comics as something that works, mm-hmm. um, or that we have a long history and we've known and loved our whole lives, but that's mm-hmm. not required. Mm-hmm. But we also really realize that. Um, Everyone does have a voice, ultimately, you know, in one way or another, and this is a really interesting forum in which we found a way to kind of all speak on an equal plane. Mm-hmm. So the language of the graphic novel versus the language of traditional health literature, which you kind of alluded to a little earlier, it seems like it's a lot more pared down. How do you decide what to include, and has your approach to what's actually in the novel changed or in what you're, you know, what you're producing changed over time? Right. So I think, you know, there, there's certainly like targeted things like you know, if you're working on a, like for an example of a project going on here in Chicago, you're working on a pamphlet in graphic form that's going to be handed to a patient when they enter the hospital about what it's like to be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So that's a targeted audience with very specific needs. Mm-hmm. So the, that's what's going to be first and foremost. And, you know, it's going to be informed by what people who have studied um, health education have to say, and it's going to be informed by the needs of the recipient audience, which is different from a graphic novel, for example, like like my book, a graphic memoir, that's going to partly be informed by who, who I hope my readership is, but it's, you know, a lot more artistic license, right? Mm-hmm. You're also co-author of the Graphic Medicine Manifesto. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Right. So that's a book that some colleagues and I, uh, mostly the ones that I mentioned early in the story about that I reached out to who were also doing this work. Mm -hmm. Um, So a couple of colleagues at Penn State and a colleague in the UK, a physician who was also making comics and researching them, um, and a few other colleagues who work in this field. We thought that it would be important to talk about kind of some of the things I've been mentioning, kind of how we see this work going forward, what some of the kind of core principles are. Um, I mentioned the one with regard to the voice of the patient and family being amplified, but also we're very much informed by representing voices who perhaps have been marginalized in the past, Mm -hmm. bearing witness to stigmatized experiences. And as a nurse, I very much consider caregiving, like that personal caregiving we do in our homes to, in a lot of ways, be stigmatized. You don't see images of that, except in these graphic novels. There's an, a couple of really wonderful graphic memoir that actually represent caregiving in the home and, and in facilities in just beautiful ways. They can also show some of the real problematic things that come up, things that happen. And, and I think that people who are doing caregiving would appreciate that. I certainly knew that, that, that reading these books while I was caring for my mother certainly helped. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting point because I think so many people who do caregiving are really frustrated by the images of caregiving that we see. They're almost like Hallmark cards always, these photos. Very sanitized. I mean, it's right. so sanitized. And it's just Yeah, and, and not in these you know, not in a lot of graphic novels that I, I can provide you with a list of, for example. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It really bears to the difficult experiences of, for example, you know, when you have to the first time you have to give one of your own parents a bath. 
stuff, you yeah. know. That's not something we talk about, but it happens in these books, and it gets shown, and it gets talked about and amplified, and I think that's important. Um, and then the other area that I think is really stigmatized and that we like to represent, among many others, disability, we, we very much have a disability uh, ethic. We very much you know, have these ethics of representation, but also just death itself. Mm-hmm. That Natural death is something that's stigmatized, and it's represented in these books as well. Mm-hmm. You did a residency, a mini residency at Duke University um, in March of this year. I'd be really interested to know about some of the presentations you made and how the students reacted and engaged with your work. Yeah, so while I was there, I did a number of presentations. Um, one was on the topic I just mentioned, which was comics and representations of natural death and hospice and end-of-life care. That was to a class that was studying end-of-life care and kind of death issues, they were incredibly receptive because even though you're talking about something so serious and so profound, the thing about comics is that it can make it actually somehow enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Um, It can make the experience of processing difficult things not unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And so that they received that very well. Another presentation I did at Duke was to a class that was studying medical narratives generally and kind of focused on this aspect that we've been talking about, graphic medicine. And then the last class that I worked with at Duke was quite amazing. It was a cross-studies between stories of medical narratives and theater studies. And what they had done was actually adapted my book to a stage production as the oh, final wow. project. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. That was pretty amazing. So I got to work with them early in the process and just watch them think through theater. It was pretty astonishing. And I think by far of any classroom I'd ever been in with my book, and by that point I'd been in maybe 8 to 10, they engaged it in the most profound way because they had to take this responsibility for representing it on the stage. And it was really amazing to see, again, a way in which the arts and the humanities can really have such an important way of processing information. Were you surprised that there was an interest at all among students in end-of-life care? I mean, we, you know, I think a lot of young people get a bad rap in the way that they're not even focused on the future in that way. <laughs> you know, it is interesting. I think you're absolutely right. I think they do get a bad rap. I think that co- classes in death and dying have been in colleges for a very long time. I took one when I was in college back in the 80s, and hmm. I think it's always been there. I think that there are students who who are ready to think about and talk about those things. And, and the other thing that always amazes me is, you know, we have this sense of a stereotype about young people, but the truth is you have no idea what people have gone through. You don't know, and people have, have experienced loss and trauma in so many ways. And, you know, they are seeking ways to make sense of it. And I think a class in death and dying in a lot of, a lot of cases is a way to start doing that. Mm-hmm. Tell us what other issues you plan to focus on in future comic issues. Have you started working on another big novel? Tell us what's up. Yeah, Yeah. so I've just gotten started on kind of getting my thoughts together for my next book, which very much will be about my mom and kind of our relationship as mother and daughter, but also fellow nurses and the ways in which we struggled through uh, my coming out and, you know, just just kind of like life and then how mm-hmm. that led very naturally into kind of caregiving for her towards the end of our, her life. And so that's definitely my next big project. But along the way, I'm also very interested in looking at, and I'm working with some colleagues in New York, to look at ways in which perhaps comics can have a role in perhaps getting people to be willing to talk about their values around healthcare. So mm-hmm. should something happen to them, 
what do they want their family to know? People have a difficult time having this conversation. Oh, yeah. For, um, for obvious reasons, right? Nobody wants to think about, like, me getting in a terrible car accident tomorrow, right? Yet our families are left to deal with not knowing if those things happen. And also, you know, as we approach the end of our lives, which we all will, what should people who care about us need to know about us to make decisions? And so I'm trying to think about how comics and, and these colleagues and I are thinking about how comics can be helpful in helping facilitating those discussions. Mm-hmm. And as far as your novel, Taking Turns, your graphic memoir, Taking Turns, what do you want readers to take away from this graphic novel? Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. I think for people who weren't there uh, during the AIDS crisis and have only just sort of heard about it, I'd hope that it be used kind of as an access point to kind of, here's this kind of pleasant comic you can read to learn about what happened then and then as a gateway to maybe learning more and seeking out more resources and just learning this history. And then for people who were there and remember this time, maybe to start thinking about talking about their own stories and telling their own stories and sharing stories because stories are so helpful in healing. You know, we're just approaching a time, I think, when people are starting to be ready to talk about it. The AIDS crisis, you know, it was such a difficult time in so many communities and and so many people lost Mm -hmm. loved ones that maybe Mm -hmm. it's something that we can start talking about. So I hope that my book would be a part of that conversation. And then also just more generally modeling what really connected community-based care can look like. Because during the AIDS crisis, there were so many people who weren't able to get care from the traditional channels. Mm -hmm. And so a community stepped up and took care of itself. And I really wondered while I was doing this project, do we need a crisis to really think that way? Mm. And so I hope to sort of get conversations around that going and and people seeing kind of what that kind of care looked like. Mm. Are you doing any speaking events coming up? Maybe you can share some of that with our audience. I've been doing since March a a lot of traveling. I'm I'm taking a little break until Mm. August, and then I'm going back to Duke for two wonderful events there. And then I will be speaking at the Association of Medical Humanities and Bioethics in October. And I'm trying to think of what else I'll be doing. Um, Oh, and then I'm going to Berlin. There's a wonderful conference called Pathographics in Berlin. I'll be doing a keynote there about comics and medicine. Yeah. Well, I want to give you the chance to offer any last thoughts before we go. Anything else Um, you'd like to add? Yeah, absolutely. One thing I'd like to add for anyone who's caregiving is to think about if perhaps you responded thinking like, oh, well, that's all fine and good. You can draw and I can't draw. I definitely would recommend reading Chapter 6 of the Graphic Medicine Manifesto, and it's called The Crayon Revolution. And it really, I hope, advocates for the fact that we all can draw. Like, I was not the kid who could draw in school. And if you pick up my book, you can look at it and say, yeah, okay, I get it. I believe you. (laughs) You know, I was discouraged from drawing. I was better with words. But um, when we access our images, it gives us, you know, we're using very different areas of our brain and we're making connections that I think, and it can take us to places that would really surprise you. And I would encourage people, even if you're doing something as simple as using stick figures or simple geometric body shapes, whatever it takes, to consider drawing. Just, you know, put a a cross across a page, a line down and a line across, and you'll have four panels. And just do a little image and text about whatever comes to your mind. And I found this to be an incredibly helpful way to process caregiving experiences and difficulties and, and thoughts. And just consider drawing at the service of what it is you're going through. Author, artist, and speaker M.K. Serwick. She's a registered nurse and senior fellow at the George Washington University School of Nursing, Center for Health Policy and Media Engagement. 
We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to MK's graphic memoir, Taking Turns, Stories from HIV AIDS Care Unit 371, plus a link to MK's website, comicnurse.com, where you can keep up with all of her wonderful work and catch her at her next speaking event. MK, thanks so much for being on the show and keep up the great work. Oh, thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com. And use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Yours.